welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshesh, and Tiras. The sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Phut, and Canaan. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxed, Lud, and Aram. Genesis chapter 10, verses 2, 6, and 22, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very glad to be with you today as we continue the series we started several weeks ago on Anchored by Truth. We are calling this series, 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. So far, we have covered six of the ten facts, and we have done two other episodes to talk about what those facts mean. R.D., the purpose of this series is to give listeners ten solid facts that they can turn to when they encounter narratives in the world that try to cast doubt on the reliability of the Bible. And in our culture, people trying to do that is pretty common, isn't it? Well, I'd also like to say hello to all the listeners, whether they're with us on the broadcast or the podcast. We're genuinely grateful that you would spend some time today and just focus on the Bible. Well, yes, we need to acknowledge that our culture constantly feeds us messages that are in conflict with the Bible. Now, a great deal of the time, these messages, they're dressed up to make us think that they possess some kind of authority, some kind of dispositive authority, with which we would disagree at our peril. A lot of the time, maybe most of the time, the costumes that these cultural messages wear is the garb of science, or else supposed science. For instance, in our culture, we are told that science tells us that the universe and the earth are billions of years old, whereas we learn from the Bible that the universe and the earth are really only thousands of years old. And we're told by our so-called science that the geological features that we see on the Earth's surface resulted from uniform factors that had been operating over those billions of years. And we are told that the living creatures that we see all around us today were also produced by these uniform factors operating in a slow and gradual way, creating individual mutations one at a time, and that those mutational changes have been going on during that vast pool of what I call deep time. Well, these narratives are so pervasive in our culture, and they have such compulsive power, that even many Christians have started to believe them, even though they are in direct conflict with the Bible. But just because these narratives are pervasive doesn't make them true. And that's what we've been showing everyone by the facts in this series. For instance, the presence of detectable carbon-14, which is the radioactive form of carbon, in diamonds is directly at odds with the assertion those diamonds were formed hundreds of millions of years ago. 
Carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,730 years. Every 5,700 years or so, the amount of carbon-14 present in anything decreases by 50%. If the diamonds were really hundreds of millions of years old, any carbon-14 present during the formation of the diamond would have long since have turned into ordinary carbon. Correct. So the first fact that we covered in this series is that the scientific evidence for deep time is not nearly as compelling as we are regularly told that it is. There is an abundance of scientific observations that cast serious doubt on the conventional contentions about time. Similarly, as you mentioned, we are routinely told that the features of the Earth are the result of uniformitarian processes that have been going on during the deep time that's supposedly available. But in our third fact in this series, we showed that there are marine fossils found on the highest mountains of the Earth. Well, that obviously means that those mountains, the Himalayas, were at one time covered by water. Well, if the Himalayas had been formed by a slow, gradual uplift that lifted those fossils out of the water, and that uplift took tens of millions of years, well then, during those tens of millions of years, erosion would have worn away the fossil-containing layers, if not worn away the mountains themselves. So, today we want to introduce our seventh fact, And this seventh fact that Christians need to know goes hand in hand with that third fact. Because what we are going to show is that there is not only geological and paleontological evidence that the flood of Noah occurred as described by the Bible, but there is also an abundance of geographic, historical, and linguistic evidence of the reliability of the biblical text that talks about the flood. Today, we're going to talk about the considerable evidence that the names of Noah's grandsons have been preserved in remarkable ways on at least three different continents. So, just by way of background, let's remind everyone that the Bible tells us that when the ark came to rest after the floodwaters receded, it landed in a region that is part of modern-day Turkey. The Bible also tells us that Noah had three sons and 16 grandsons. But the Bible does not tell us that Noah had any daughters or granddaughters, does it? No, it doesn't. But we do know that Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were all married before they got into the ark. Now, undoubtedly, those couples had daughters as well as sons, and the grandchildren of Noah intermarried with one another. But you have to remember that this is a time when the human gene pool had not suffered nearly as much deterioration as it would later. And we also have to remember that this is a very long time before the giving of the law and some of the restrictions and prohibitions that were placed in far later periods on close family members intermarrying. At any rate, the Bible has preserved the names of Noah's 16 grandsons, and we know from history and geography that those names have been indelibly carved on the ancient world. And we know that because, as Noah's grandsons began to have their families and spread out, several things happened. First, people in various areas called themselves by the name of the man who was their common ancestor. Second, those expanding families of grandchildren, great-grandchildren, etc., began calling their land, and often their major cities or rivers, by the name of their common ancestor. And third, In some cases, the various nations that were now forming fell into ancestor worship. They abandoned their focus on the true God who had saved their ancestors and began revering the ancestor who was most prominent in their memories. 
This was particularly true because the first generations after the flood lived to be very old, with some of the men outliving their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. This set them apart. When this happened, it was natural for their descendants to almost regard them as being more than human. In some cases, the descendants began to claim their long-living ancestor as their god. What all this means is that the evidence of Noah's sons and grandsons has been preserved in a way that can never be lost. God ensured that human history would contain evidence of the authenticity of the biblical account. There is a very good article about this evidence on the website for Creation Ministries International, which is creation.com. So let's take a look at some of that evidence. First, let's note that Noah's son Japheth had seven sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshesh, and Tiras. Now Noah's son Ham had four sons, Cush, Mizraim, Phut, and Canaan. And Noah's son Shem had five sons, Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. So let's start with an easy example, Shem's son named Aram. Noah's grandson, Aram's name is preserved in the history of the people and nation of Syria, which is where Aram's descendants settled after the dispersal that followed the Tower of Babel. Aram is the Hebrew word for Syria. Every time the word Syria appears in the Old Testament, it is a translation of the word Aram. In fact, the Syrians call themselves Aramaeans. Their language is called Aramaic. Before the spread of the Greek Empire, following the conquests of Alexander the Great, Aramaic was used as the international language. 2,500 years after Aram's birth, Aramaic was still in widespread use. In fact, it was still in use in Jesus' day as the language of the common people. And here's another obvious example of how the names of Noah's grandsons have been preserved by secular history. Ashur is the Hebrew word for Assyria. Assyria was one of the Middle East's great ancient empires. Assyria is mentioned frequently by the Bible, most often mentioned as one of Israel's most dangerous enemies. Well, because Assyria was an enemy of Israel, the prophet Jonah did not want to go and preach in the capital city of Assyria, called Nineveh, as God had told him to. And we all know how that turned out. Jonah's experience in the belly of the whale, though the Bible just calls it a big fish, came as a direct result of his disobedience. Despite the big fish episode, Jonah still wound up going to Nineveh and the whole population converted as a consequence of his preaching. So, in an ironic, providential way, Jonah was converting his distant cousins because both he and the Assyrians were descendants of Shem. Yes. Every time the word Assyria or Assyrian appear in the Old Testament, they are translated from the word Ashur. Ashur's descendants became a mighty empire. And probably because of that, Ashur became an example of the ancestor worship that we mentioned earlier. Ashur was worshipped by his descendants. As long as Assyria lasted, which was for many centuries, until 612 B.C., The accounts of battles and diplomatic affairs and foreign bulletins were daily read out to Ashur's image. And it was said that every Assyrian king that ever wore the crown of the Assyrian Empire did so only with the express permission of Ashur's deified ghost. So Ashur and Aram were sons of Shem and grandsons of Noah. 
They founded tribes and nations that are well known even by secular history. And the fact their names are so well known authenticates the accuracy of the text of Genesis chapter 10 where their names appear. This reinforces the fact that there is strong linguistic and geographic evidence that favors the Bible's description of the Genesis flood and its effects on humanity. How about if we move on and discuss some of Noah's grandsons that were born to Japheth? Okay. Let's start with the very first of Noah's grandsons that the Bible mentions that were born to Japheth. The first grandson was named Gomer. Gomer was the first listed in the genealogical order. And Gomer is a great illustration of two things. First, that the geographic spread of Noah's descendants is exactly what you would have expected of a human population that was being rebuilt starting in or around Turkey. Now, Shem's sons Aram and Ashur had founded nations that are both located to the south and east of Turkey. But Japheth's son Gomer founded nations that spread to the north and west. The prophet Ezekiel located the early descendants of Gomer, along with one of his sons, Tagarma, in the northern quarters. In modern Turkey is an area which in the New Testament times was called Galatia. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus records that the people who are called Galatians or Gauls in his day, A.D. 93, were previously called Gomerites. Right. And as we've mentioned, the Gomerites did not remain in Turkey. They migrated westward to what we now call France and Spain. You know, for many centuries, France was called Gaul, after the descendants of Gomer. And northwest Spain is still called Galatia to this day. Furthermore, some of the Gomerites migrated even further west to what is now called Wales. A Welsh historian named Davis records that a traditional Welsh belief is that the descendants of Gomer landed on the Isle of Britain from France about 300 years after the flood. Davis also records that the Welsh language is called Gomereg, and that's of course a tie directly back to their distant ancestor Gomer. Well, other members of the Gomerite clan settled along the way between Turkey and Wales, including in Armenia. Now, Gomer had some sons that were called Ashkenaz, Ripoth, and Togermah. You can check Genesis chapter 10, verse 3 to see those names. Now, the Encyclopedia Britannica says that the Armenians traditionally claim that they are descended from Togarmah and Ashkenaz. And, of course, in ancient times, Armenia actually reached down into the nation that we call Turkey today. As a matter of fact, the name Turkey may well have its original derivation from Togarmah. Now, others of the Gomerites migrated to Germany, and that connection is supported by the fact that Ashkenaz is the Hebrew word for Germany. But Japheth's sons didn't just spread north and west from Turkey. They also spread far to the east. One of Japheth's sons was named Madai. Along with Shem's son Elam, Madai is the ancestor of our modern-day Iranians. Josephus tells us the descendants of the Madai were called Medes by the Greeks. This makes perfect sense because every time the Medes were mentioned in the Old Testament, the word used is the Hebrew word for Madai. Initially, the Medes were a separate people and nation, but after the time of Cyrus, the Medes are always, and with one exception, mentioned along with the Persians. After Cyrus and the two nations became one kingdom with one law, the Bible will often refer to the law of Medes and Persians. Later on, the combined entity was simply called the Persians. Since 1935, they have called their country Iran. The Medes also moved even further east and are thought to have settled India. 
another one of Noah's grandsons, and also a son of Japheth, was Javan. Javan is the Hebrew word for Greece. Greece, Grecia, or Grecians appears five times in the Old Testament, and it is always the Hebrew word Javan. The prophet Daniel refers to the king of Grecia in Daniel chapter 8 verse 21, but what Daniel literally says is the king of Javan. Javan himself had four sons named Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim all of whom have connections with the geographic region of the Middle or Eastern Mediterranean region. The Elysians were an ancient Greek people and obviously received their name from Elisha. Tarshish, or Tarsus, was located in the region of Cilicia, which is part of modern Turkey. Most people know that Greece and Turkey are located very close to each other geographically. Turkey is just east of Greece, across a body of water. And Tarshish is famous because the Bible tells us that that was the destination of the boat that Jonah caught before he wound up in the Mediterranean Sea and the belly of the fish. And after the name evolved into Tarsus, the city became famous as the hometown of the Apostle Paul. In the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 11, we hear God telling a man named Ananias to go seek out Paul, who at the time was still called Saul. God said to Ananias, quote, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Unquote. Right, and the geographic connections with Javan continue. The Encyclopedia Britannica says that Kittim is the biblical name for Cyprus. Cyprus is an island that is south of Turkey and near the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. Now, Javan's fourth son, Dodanim, is connected with the famous city of Troy. The people who initially settled around the area of Troy worshipped a god named Jupiter under the name of Jupiter Dodonaeus, and that's quite possibly a reference to the fourth son of Javan. Jupiter itself may be a derivative of the name Japheth. Jupiter's oracle was located at a site called Dodina, and the Greeks worshipped that same god, but they just called him Zeus. So, thus far we see that the geographic territory occupied by Japheth's descendants has covered a pretty wide range. We have seen that the descendants of his first son Gomer have been found as far to the west of Turkey as Wales and as far to the east as India. This seems like a remarkable confirmation that God honored the prayer that Noah uttered in Genesis chapter 9, verse 27, part of which said, quote, May God extend Japheth's territory, unquote. Well, let's take note of one more son of Japheth, Tubal. Ezekiel mentions Tubal along with Gog and Meshesh. Tubal's name is preserved in the name of the capital city of the current nation of Georgia, whose capital to this day is called Tbilisi. From Georgia, Tubal's descendants crossed the Caucasus Mountains, migrated due northeast, and they gave their tribal name to the river Tobol. And hence, there's a famous city in Russia called Tobolsk. So, this expands the territorial reach of Japheth even more. Japheth's descendants stretched over most of the continent of Europe and deep into the continent of Asia. Now, by contrast, the descendants of Noah's other son, Ham, they are found primarily on the continent of Africa. Ham had four sons, Cush, Dreham, Phut, and Canaan. Ham's descendants are so prominently identified with Africa that the Bible often refers to Africa as the land of Ham. For instance, the name of Noah's grandson, Cush, 
is the Hebrew word for Old Ethiopia. The Ethiopia of the Bible is not in the same place as the nation currently called by that name. Biblical Ethiopia is located more in the region of the modern Sudan. This is obviously still on the African continent. Without exception, the word Ethiopia in the English Bible is always a translation of the Hebrew word Cush. Noah's next grandson was named Mizraim. Mizraim is the Hebrew word for Egypt, and the name Egypt appears hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and with only one exception, is always a translation of the word Mizraim. For instance, at the burial of the patriarch Jacob, the Canaanites observed the mourning of the Egyptians, and so the Canaanites called the place where they were mourning Abel Mizraim. That's Genesis chapter 50 verse 11. But the name of Noah's next grandson is the Hebrew name for Libya. It is translated three times in the Old Testament that way. And the ancient river Phut was in Libya. Now by the prophet Daniel's day, the name had been changed from Phut to Libya. But Josephus tells us, quote, Phut was also the founder of Libya and called the inhabitants Phutites from himself, close quote. And Ham's final son, Canaan, his name, of course, is famous, and he gave his name to the land that today we often call Palestine. Now, when God encountered Moses at the burning bush, God told Moses that he was going to send Moses to bring his people into the land of the Canaanites. And for a long time, the name Canaan was synonymous with the territory that we call Israel. By the time of the Romans, that territory was being called Palestine. But even the term Palestine has a connection to Noah's grandsons. Many scholars see a connection between the Hebrew word that is translated in our Bibles as Philistines. Philistine, in turn, comes from one of the terms Philistim, who is one of Ham's descendants. So this very quick and brief look at Noah's grandsons reveals several things. First, we see that as Noah's grandsons founded tribes, those tribes grew into nations, and those nations fanned out around the part of the world where the ark is traditionally thought to have landed, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, some of Noah's descendants, especially the families that descended from Shem, they settled reasonably close by in ancient Assyria, which is modern Lebanon, and in Syria, which is pretty much in the same place today as it was then. Ham's descendants, though, they moved south of that into Africa, and they first settled along the Mediterranean coast, but ultimately they moved even further into the interior of the African continent. Japheth's sons, they moved north. They began to spread widely to the east and the west, and they did ultimately spread over a very wide territory, just as Noah had prayed for. Noah had prayed that God would enlarge Japheth's territory, and he did. And of course, it makes sense that it would take longer to reach more distant places, but there was another consideration, wasn't there? In the aftermath of the global flood, the conditions were perfect for the Ice Age. The volcanic eruptions beneath the sea had put a lot of moisture into the air, and the increased particulate matter would have brought on cooler for longer conditions. So, as Noah's descendants spread, they would have been more likely to go south first and waited for improvement in the conditions in the northern parts of Europe and Asia. But once the conditions did improve, it would have been ideal for settlement. The plants and animals would have made a comeback, and there would have been no competition. And the point of all this, of course, is that the geographic names 
Names that remain with us today point to the accuracy of the Noahic genealogies that are contained in the book of Genesis. And this is confirmation that when Moses recorded that genealogy, Moses was writing history. He wasn't just doing some kind of poetical look back at the early history of mankind. This is one of the reasons we took pains in our last episode on Angered by Truth to point out the fact that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. Moses obviously wasn't around when Noah's sons and grandsons were, so God may have given Moses the history he wanted Moses to record, or Moses may have worked from oral or written histories still in circulation, likely a combination of both. All of this points to the reliability of the record that Moses wrote under God's inspiration. Moses probably had very little, if any, information about how far the Gomorites had spread into France or Germany. And Moses probably had very little information about the fact that Javan's descendants were forming city-states in what we now call Greece. Moses was recording the names that God gave to him, but many of those names were relevant to tribes and peoples of which Moses was probably completely unaware. But the accuracy of the record that Moses was preparing would be confirmed later in history by a great many historians, even ones from nations far outside his own, and archaeological finds that would only emerge into widespread view 3,500 years later. But through those faraway names and places, God left an indelible imprint of the accuracy of the record that the Holy Spirit was inspiring Moses to write. That's a pretty phenomenal thought. As we have been discussing here today, the Bible's continuing relevance is established by the abundant evidence that is accurate even to such small details as the name of one man's grandsons who lived thousands of years ago. Yes. You know, I know people sometimes chase at the Bible's genealogies. And I suspect that most people, when they read their Bible, skip right over these lists of names. They skip right over the lists of who begat who when they're reading their Bible. And I think that sometimes even faithful Christians may think that it is more important to read the chapters in the Bible on family relationships or doctrinal proclamations or subjects like love and peace than it is to spend any time on the genealogies. But the simple truth is that the genealogies give us strong evidence that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And the genealogies help us make sense out of God's actions within world history. Without that kind of evidence, we would have no good reason to invest our trust in what the Bible tells us about other things like salvation or financial matters, family or relationships, etc. The big takeaway here is that God gave us each and every part of the Bible for our benefit. And we can learn from and benefit from even from the parts of the Bible that at first glance may not seem to be as relevant to the heart of our faith which, of course, is the salvation that is available through Christ Jesus alone. The point of this series, and today's discussion, is to help Christians guard against the narratives that circulate so widely today. To close, let's listen to a prayer of renewal and restoration so greatly needed by our churches and our hearts. A Prayer for the Renewal of the Church Righteous and just Father, you are the Lord of our hearts and the fulfillment of all of our ambitions. You have numbered the hairs on our head. 
so you certainly know when we propose to do your will and when we don't. Lord, there are a great many faithful followers of yours in our nation today. There are many whose hearts are totally devoted to you and who want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. Yet within your church, we believe there are many who have been tempted by the snares of the world and a great many who have fallen prey to the evil one. We are saddened and grieved by this, and we yearn for restoration and renewal of the church in our land. Lord, if this nation is to survive and remain a land where people may freely worship you, we acknowledge that it will not be done through or by our efforts. Only the Holy Spirit can change the hearts of our countrymen, and we believe that he will act only as we persistently and continuously pray for renewal to come. Words do not do justice to the longings within our spirits to see this nation be visited by another great awakening. As you have done in the past, bring light to your people. Let us learn to handle your word properly and then bring it to the world by Christ's power, through Christ's love, and praying continuously in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.